Before the, um, the message, I just uh, want to remind you, you may have seen the slide in the announcements, but uh, following the service this morning, there is an opportunity to uh, follow up on the message, to discuss the sermon, and to explore some related questions uh, to the text and to the message. So if, if you uh, haven't uh, received an email or you might want to check your email for a link to join the discussion, and if you can't find it in your email, if you go to the website and, and look under groups, uh, you should be able to uh, track down a, uh, an invitation to, to join the group. This morning we're uh, continuing to think about the relationship of the church to the kingdom of God, and we're going to be looking at the theme of evidences of the kingdom. The state university in the western Kansas town where I grew up had a, a wonderful museum. Uh, they don't have it anymore. They commercialized it and put it out by the interstate and charged people money to, to look at it now. But when I was a kid growing up, it was free and you could just walk in and wander around. And uh, as, as a kid, it was a great place for me to go on a hot summer day when, and just to, to kill time. They had extensive fossil collections that pointed to the natural history of the region, and they had some more uh, recent memorabilia uh, considered in the broad range of time from uh, the days when, when our town uh, was uh, home to people like uh, Colonel Custer before he uh, went farther west to the Little Bighorn, uh, to Bill Hickok and Bill Cody, but what I enjoyed most uh, in wandering through, through the museum was looking at the collection of Native American arrowheads and spear points, just hundreds of them that had been collected and brought into the museum, often by farmers turning up the ground and uh, the rain would come down and, and it would expose these and fellows with sharp eyes would spot them and bring them in. So it was a, a real pleasure for me uh, a few years ago to come across a book by a fellow named uh, Craig Childs called Atlas of a Lost World, Travels in Ice Age America. And in, this was, uh, he put this out in 2018. And he takes the reader to various sites in North America, ranging from Alaska uh, by the Bering Strait, uh, as far as east as the state of Maine, and he unfolds the archeological evidence for the early inhabitants of our continent. And in, in particular, he explores the various sites which bear witness to the working of uh, stone tools and stone weapons, almost all of which were fashioned from very specific kinds of stone that were found only in a few select locations across the North American continent. Uh, and the people who worked these stones uh, would uh, bring them great distances and gather with others, and I suppose they, they manufactured the, the implements, the weapons, and then they uh, no doubt traded them as they headed to other, other parts of the, the territory. So the cultural remains of the earliest North Americans are exceedingly scarce but their skill in napping stone into delicate arrowheads with fluted points and distinctive styles leaves no doubt 
that they, they were here. This morning we're going to look at the theme of evidences for the kingdom. And my hope is that uh, we will learn to think of ourselves as evidences, as signs, as traces, if you will, of a world not easily seen, not like the lost world of the Ice Age in North America, but a world yet to come, a world breaking in from the future. Abraham's city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, the better country on which the heroes of faith of Hebrews chapter 11, who died in faith, set their hearts. Our scripture reading today is from two portions of of God's word, one from Exodus chapter 8 and the other from Luke chapter 11. The connection between the two, and I hope you'll watch for it as I read, is a turn of phrase, a turn of phrase that's really all about evidence. So uh, watch for it as I read. Exodus chapter 8, verses 16 to, to 20. This is the third plague. Uh, the first two plagues, if you remember the story, uh, Moses would stretch out his rod uh, and God would send a, a judgment, some sort of pestilence on Egypt. The water turned to blood, the frogs, and so forth. And when he would do this, the magicians of Egypt would do the same thing. But then you get to the plague of the gnats. Exodus 8, 16 to 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the land, and it will become gnats throughout the land of Egypt. And they did this. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff, and when he struck the dust of the land, gnats were on people and animals. All the dust of the land became gnats throughout the land of Egypt. The magicians tried to produce gnats using their occult practices but they could not. The gnats remained on people and animals. This is the finger of God, the magicians said to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And then we move in the New Testament now to Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 23. Now he, that is Jesus, was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon came out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he drives out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And others, as a test, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I drive out demons by Beelzebul. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges." If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Hope maybe some of you picked up the phrase about uh, that ties the magicians of Egypt and the hearers of Jesus together. Well, Jesus had a little more to say. 
When a strong man, fully armed, guards his estate, his possessions are secure, but when one stronger than he attacks and overpowers him, he takes from him all his weapons he trusted in and divides up his plunder. Anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Last week we introduced the calling of the church as one of bearing witness to the kingdom. Put very simply, we are to say something. We've been given a message to tell. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. A witness offers testimony that can be heard. This week we're looking at our calling to be evidence or signs of the kingdom. Evidence demonstrates something. Evidence, if I can oversimplify it, offers something that can be seen. Testimony can be heard. Evidence can be seen. And you don't have to think about this very long to realize that uh, testimony and evidence are just distinctions. And ultimately, they function in the same way. They point, both evidence and testimony point to something true that is not directly accessible. One who testifies gives evidence. And likewise, events and artifacts can, as we say, bear witness to things that we cannot directly see. We need to remember that Jesus sent out his disciples to do what he was doing, proclaiming the kingdom of God, healing and casting out demons. His preaching was witness. The healing and the casting out of demons were a kind of evidence or sign that accompanied the testimony. Today's scriptures, as I hope you were all quick to spot, are about the finger of God, the finger of God. The question that presents itself in in these two texts that we read is how you account for extraordinary events or phenomena. In both of our passages, the finger of God indicates that these extraordinary events, these extraordinary uh, happenings manifest the power of God. That's the explanation that accounts for the proliferation of gnats in the land of Egypt. And it's a conclusion put forth quite tellingly by the magicians of Egypt, practitioners of the occult, of the dark arts. This is the finger of God, they say, because they weren't able to do it. So it must, it must have been God that was doing that. And in Luke 11, by contrast, Jesus puts this forth as a possibility concerning which his hearers, none of whom are Egyptian magicians, uh, must decide. In Luke 11, uh, for example, the first thing that we can note just in passing before we uh, get a little more into the text is that conspiracy theories are nothing new. If you want to discredit people you don't like or people that you perceive as a threat, uh, announce that they are Satan's helpers. Someone will be sure to listen to you. In Luke 11, Jesus casts out a demon that was mute. The man who was formerly demon-possessed began to speak. And on this point, that the demon had been cast out, 
Everyone was agreed. They heard the man speak. The demon was manifestly gone. Moreover, they were all agreed that this was not just some random thing that happened. They were all agreed that Jesus had done this by the working of an extraordinary power. The question raised, though, was what kind of power, or more, more specifically, whose power? After all, the source of the power was not open to human perception. They saw the event, but the power behind it was an open question. So Jesus' adversaries proposed that Jesus cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. That would reasonably account for the power of an exorcism. Surely Satan could cast out, if Satan can possess people with demons, Satan can dispossess them of demons. So there's a, there's a reasonable explanation. And who can falsify it? That's, that's the great thing about conspiracy theories, especially when you accuse your adversaries of being Satan's helpers. After all, it's, it can't be falsified because Satan is the master of deception. So if you're in league with the devil, one thing is sure that uh, the devil will protect you from being discovered. But Jesus responds by questioning the wisdom or the coherence of this particular claim. And note that it's not, an, it's not this particular instance alone that's under discussion. His adversaries don't say, oh, well, he did this by the power of the devil. They said, no, Jesus' general practice of casting out demons was by the power of Satan. Jesus was going all around the country doing this fairly routinely, apparently, at least in, during certain times in his ministry. Uh, but Jesus replies that this would be folly on Satan's part. If, if Satan routinely uh, and repeatedly casts out demons or en enables Jesus to cast out demons, Satan would be undoing his own work. Jesus points out that every kingdom divided against itself will be laid waste. So Jesus challenges them to consider another possibility, that he has cast out the demon by the finger of God. Of course, in, as we've recognized now, in the reference to the finger of God, there is a, a clear echo of the magicians of Egypt and an implied uh, telling rebuke of Jesus' adversaries. Even the pagan mag magicians of Egypt could recognize the finger of God. But sadly, uh, those who undoubtedly thought of themselves as faithful followers of the Lord, the God of Israel, could not. When a, when a man who was in the, the grip of the power of Satan is set free, all they can come up with is, oh, this must be the devil. Jesus is in league with the devil. But Jesus presses them that if this is the case, if he has cast out demons by the finger of God, if the fingerprints of God are on the work of Jesus, this is a sign, it is evidence that the kingdom of God had come upon them. Now, one of the first observations we can make about this is that, is that like testimony, like witness-bearing, the evidence of the kingdom 
or signs of the kingdom leave room for faith. We mentioned last Sunday that evidence, testimony, always leaves room for faith. It comes down, do I trust this witness or not? I wasn't there. This, uh, this witness bears witness, uh, testimony concerning something that he or she knows that I don't have firsthand knowledge of. So I have to take this uh, person's testimony, in a sense, uh, on faith. The same, same with the evidence for the kingdom. People could attribute the power of the kingdom to other factors, even to the devil. So people had to make a decision. That's what Jesus presses for in the last uh, verse of our text from Luke. Jesus said, He who is not for me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And that gathering and scattering, I'm sure, is a reference to sheep, to the flock, uh, to God's flock. People have to make up their minds. Are you for me or against me? You have to decide, is this power the power of God, or is it explained in some other way? Now, there's so much that we could say about our calling as followers of Jesus to be evidence or signs of the kingdom of God. This morning, I just I want to stay with this uh, exorcism, if you will, or to take the exorcism as the point of departure to remember Jesus' victory over the powers of darkness. So, from this particular instance of the casting out of a demon, we are reminded uh, that the work of Christ is the, the dethroning, if you will, of the prince of darkness. Jesus explains in our text what he was up to with the analogy of the stronger man who plunders the possessions of the one who is merely strong. He says if a if you have a strong man who arms himself and he puts in all of his security system in his uh, house and does his best to make sure that uh, all his property is safe and nailed down, well and good. Jesus said there's a problem, though. There's, there's always the possibility that someone stronger than, than he is will come around and will disarm him and will plunder all of his stuff. Jesus, of course, is the stronger man who plunders Satan's kingdom. That's his ultimate explanation of this particular event. It's, uh, it points to all that he is up to in his practice of casting out demons. He is plundering Satan's treasure. And this, of course, is part of the good news of the kingdom of God. This is why the kingdom of God is such good news, because God, by his saving power, is putting the world to rights. This means, as John the Evangelist says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. Heidelberg Catechism, question 1 and answer 1, in explaining, why, in explaining our only comfort in life and in death, reminds us that our faithful Savior has fully paid for all our sins with his precious blood and has set us free from the tyranny of the devil. When Jesus plunders Satan's kingdom, he makes Satan's prisoners a new people. As St. Paul told the Colossian Christians in chapter 1, verse 3, God had delivered them from the dominion of darkness 
and transferred them into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom they have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So when Jesus sets people free, he, he ushers them into a new kingdom. He ushers them into a, uh, an estate under a new Lord, a new sovereign. They are now citizens of a new kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, where God's will is done. So when we ask for ourselves what it might look like for us to be evidences of the kingdom of God, uh, what it would mean to be a people upon whom God's fingerprints are evident, one clear answer is that we would be people of extraordinary gratitude, people of astounding contentment, We have been set free and brought into fellowship with the living God through Christ and the power of the Spirit. We can say confidently with King David of old, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In contrast, we can look about in our society and in our culture at this particular juncture in history. Our culture is characterized in large measure by angry people. Uh, James uh, Davison Hunter, in his book, To Change the World, he wrote that in 2010. Uh, He's a sociologist at the University of Virginia, a devout Christian, Uh, and he, he talked about, of the many challenges just facing Christians as we seek to, uh, and he's, he's not real, uh, He's not real encouraging, by the way, at least in the short term, about the prospect of Christians changing the world because of the the things that we're up against. But he says one of the things that characterized society then, 2010, 10 years ago, was that people were just downright angry for all sorts of reasons. But there was just this mood of anger, uh, and everybody's angry with everybody else. From one end of the spectrum to the other, people are angry. And sadly, the church is often caught up in this anger. Christians join the anger in the culture and bring it into the church. And this, as much as anything, empties our corporate life as God's people of any evidential power. Why should people care if we're no different than the rest of the the culture? People would not guess that we belong to another country, let alone a country where joy and gratitude Uh, are the foundational marks of their way of life. Uh, One of, uh, an author that I've come to appreciate, I don't don't agree with uh, quite a lot of what he says, but he has some very uh, good insights into what it it means to be uh, salt and light, to be evidence of God's kingdom. Philip Kennison uh, teaches at uh, Milligan College, I believe in uh, East Tennessee. He writes, we cannot know what lordship entails apart from communities of faith who daily strive to embody the claims of this Lord on their lives. Do we really know what the coming kingdom looks like apart from communities who are themselves imperfect historical embodiments of this inbreaking kingdom? And he just, he's just making the, the simple point that uh, if we bear witness to a kingdom the kingdom of God that's breaking into our world, 
the only way most people in our culture are, are going to form any view whatsoever of what that may, may be like is what they see in us. We need to be, we are imperfect, no doubt about that, but there needs to be something about us, uh, something that embodies the, the kingdom that is coming. So that's, that's one way that we can be evidence that, uh, that in our life together, we, we demonstrate some of the reality of what is coming our way uh, through the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are, we are a colony of heaven. We are an outpost. We are an advanced party, if you will, of the kingdom of God. And it should be clear from our life together uh, the good things that are coming uh, down the way. The second, thing, uh, the second way in which we may function as evidence, I would suggest, based on why the Son of Man appeared, namely that he might destroy the works of the devil, the second way that we may function as evidence is to join in Jesus' ministry to those who are ensnared by the power of darkness in the world. That power is easy to see in so many ways. And the opportunities to, to address that, the opportunities to, to join in ministry that, that seeks to set people free are as endless and varied as there are people in the church. So that uh, whatever your gift, whatever your interest, whatever your calling, I think there is a corresponding area in the kingdom of darkness where you, you could join into the battle. And by the grace of God, uh, begin to see God make a difference. Let me give just one example with which uh, I'm familiar to some extent, a limited extent, uh, and that is the epidemic of drug addiction that destroys lives and families. Uh, deaths from drug addiction have in, in, in our society, overdoses have increased during the pandemic. But it's been with us for a while and it destroys lives and families. It strikes, uh, it strikes especially younger people, not to, uh, you know, there are older folks that uh, are addicted as well, but it's particularly among the young. And anyone who has come up against this and not many are uh, in the position of not having encountered it in some way. No, it is an incredibly challenging, uh, harmful evil that has come into people's lives. Addition, addiction takes control of everything, and ministering to addicts is very, very hard. Very, very hard. Uh, for, for several years uh, before the pandemic, uh, I participated every month in a Bible study at the Tippecanoe County uh, Corrections Facility. And there were fellows that participated in the study that had been at it a lot longer than I had, some who had been there 10 years. And what struck me was that the fellows who had been there longest knew most of the inmates by name, knew about their families, because they just kept cycling back into the system and in probably 80% 80, 80 of this, those situations, drugs was the reason. And, they, and when we would pray after the Bible study and ask, what are your prayer requests? It was always, pray for my family. Pray for, pray for my children. I'm losing custody because of my, you know, my drug abuse. 
you see this people cycling back in and you realize this is really, really hard. But these are the kinds of places where we need to be. Because when, when people are set free, it points powerfully to the finger of God. Only the finger of God can truly set people free from whatever it is that holds us in our grasp. And when we see, and when that happens, it, and when Christians are involved in that, it can take them, it can take them beyond the, the, the vexing questions of church. I can't tell you how many churches I've been in where the, the big struggle that people are working on in the congregation is, how can we get baby boomers to join small groups? <laughs> oh, well, let's, let's try dinners for eight. We'll, you know, they'll, they'll sign up and they'll have dinner with people that they've never met. And there, there's all kinds of creative ideas being kicked around just because small groups are really kind of an alien life form for baby boomers and Gen Xers. They've always lived in small groups. But you know, here's the church knocking itself out, trying to figure out how to get people to have more socialization. And you know, you wonder, well, why would the world really care about that? Why would the world say, well, there's a mystery? <laughs> there is kind of a mystery there, but, uh, but not the kind that we want. What we want is for the church to appear to be a mystery because God's fingerprints are on it, and you, you can't account for the way these people are willing to go out and go into the hard and dark places, uh, lots of times with people from other church tribes than their own. But, but when it's the kingdom, it doesn't matter because the, the vision is not about our church and our fellowship groups. The vision is about the intersection of the church and the world. And when, uh, you know, and, 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 and when Presbyterians and, and Methodists and Roman Catholics, for example, one of our members was... Uh, telling me about a ministry that he's involved in where people from all sorts of denominations show up to, to care for the needy. And the world can look at that and say, well, there's a mystery. I wonder what's going on there. Maybe it's the finger of God. Maybe it's the finger of God. I'll close with one more word from Philip Kennison. God called the church into being to bear witness by its embodied life together that God has come to earth and dwelt among us, a mission that should not have left things the way that they were. Lord, write these words on our hearts. Uh, give us courage to go into the dark places. You've promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. And so uh, open our hearts and open our uh, eyes to the needs that we see and help us to take those steps that by your grace may create room for faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.